Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a good father who longs to, um, to give gifts to your children, to give us mostly yourself, your presence, your power, your promises. Help us, God, to see this morning, to, to have ears to hear, to have hearts that are open minds, that are eager and hungry to learn more about what it means to be a church that suffers well. Spirit, I pray that you would just uh, encourage our hearts, remind us that what we experience now is nothing new, and yet the particularities of it are, are new, and, and, and they're felt very intensely by us right now. And so, God, would you just enter into, by supernatural means and miracles, enter into our hearts, our imagination, our memories, our desires, and our longings. God, reorient us towards your presence and your power and your promises. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we started uh, a new series for Lent. Uh, We're looking at the seven prophetic messages to the churches in Asia. And the question we we asked last week, the reason we want to spend time here is we really want to cut through all of the noise and the confusion and the chaos of this moment. There's so many voices talking to the church, both inside and outside the church, telling us you need to do this or you should be this. And some of those voices shaming us or uh, guilt-tripping us, and some of the for good reason. But we, we said last week, we want to hear the voice of Jesus. And this is really what the, the seven messages are about, is what does Jesus think about the church? And, and again, that, the idea of seven in, in the book of Revelation is completeness or wholeness. So it's not a code to be deciphered uh, around current events. Uh, it's, it's a picture of completeness. In other words, Jesus is talking to the church then, and he's talking to the church now. He's talking to every church. And these seven messages represent the core of what Jesus wants his church to hear from him. No church represents the fullness of all the churches, and that's why we need all of the churches, not just in the present moment. We, we need what uh, G.K. Chesterton uh, in uh, Mere Orthodoxy called the democracy of the dead. We need to listen to the voices from the past and, and unite ourselves with the global church, the historic church, and listen for what Jesus has to say to us so that we can recenter ourselves on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in uh, the harshness, the reality that we're facing uh, with life in a broken world. So I said last week uh, that there's a pattern to how these messages go. There's, there's a literary pattern that they typically follow, right? So each message starts with a vision of Jesus. Jesus says, this is who I am. And, and all these are drawn from chapter one. And really all of these are ultimately drawn from pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament, uh, images or, or metaphors uh, that Jesus, God has kind of revealed of himself to his people over the course of redemptive history, starting with the Exodus and moving on down through the exilic period in prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, right? So you have the vision of Jesus. Then you have an affirmation. I, I, know, I, I know you're doing this. I see you. You're doing a good job. Keep doing this. And then typically, there is also a correction, but I have this against you. Now, this church is the exception to that pattern, one of the exceptions to that pattern. This church gets no correction. They only get affirmation, okay? And then there's an invitation to wholeness, like live this way, and then there's a promise that Jesus makes to those who conquer, and this promise is drawn from chapters 19 to 22 of Revelation, where the new heavens and the new earth come down, and, and God's people live in the holy city of Jerusalem here on earth with God as the center of their life. God is essentially the new temple dwelling among his people by his spirit, right? So this church only gets affirmation, no correction. This is a small, struggling church. 
And, and I think it's instructive for us, uh, even as we think about those in suffering. Again, remember, we talked about this last week. We're not only sinners, although there is a call to repentance in the book of Revelation that's clear and consistent, we are also sufferers. We also get sinned against. And sometimes what we need and what we hear from Jesus here is not to beat people over the head always about their sin. What we need is empathy. What we need is compassion for our suffering. And it's instructive, I think, for those of us who are ministering to other people, leading other people, serving other people, that we don't always start with sin, but we recognize that sometimes a word that's needed is one of compassion. So this church, uh, just to give you a little history, a little context, because I think it matters in terms of understanding what Jesus is saying to this church. This, this church, um, he starts out and he says to the church, uh, to the angel, uh, remember we said last week there's there's this kind of idea of a guardian angel that, that rests over the churches of God, a supernatural presence that protects the churches of God. To the angel of the church of Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was uh, 35 miles north of Ephesus on the coast. Remember, this, these letters are addressed geographically and theologically. Uh, the idea is a circle here. This, these were on the postal route, the imperial postal route. So this is just north of Ephesus. In what is basically now uh, modern-day Turkey, the city of Izmir, which is the third largest city in Turkey. And this church actually is the only church in the book of, uh, of all these churches addressed that actually still exists today. So this is uh, the loveliest of the seven churches, the most beautiful of the seven churches. It was actually in that day called the Crown and the Flower of Asia. And they actually had stamped on their coins the phrase, the first city of Asia in size and in beauty. The first city of Asia in size and in beauty. This is the birthplace of the poet Homer, also home to uh, probably the most well-known martyr in Christian uh, church history, the Bishop Polycarp. So this is a well-known city. And one of the things that um, is helpful to know what's happening here sociopolitically um, is that this city was feverish with nationalism. They were feverish with a patriotism that was in overdrive, right? So Smyrna lived by this adage. They were known for this phrase, Rome first in all things. Rome first in all things. They were a city um, that was actually the first city to win the right to build a series of temples to various Roman gods and goddesses and to a number of different emperors, there was a competition. So imagine every couple of years, Indianapolis competes to like bring the Super Bowl here, to bring the Final Four here. Uh, that's what happened. Different cities would compete for the right to build a temple to the emperor. And multiple times, which is highly unusual, uh, multiple times Smyrna won this honor. And this is a way for them to demonstrate their loyalty, their commitment, their patriotism to the imperial cult. Because again, in those days, there was no separation of politics and religion. It was all wrapped up into one, right? It was all worship was kind of wrapped up with the imperial cult, was wrapped up in uh, the political environment, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It was all kind of one thing. Now, I say that because it makes Jesus' words here so much more interesting. Because Jesus knows the context in which they're living. He understands this extreme nationalism. And, and notice G, the vision of Jesus that we get, the, the self-description of Jesus. The words of Jesus, the first and the last. 
who died and who came to life. Now, there's a theological, biblical background to these words. When Jesus says, I am the first and the last, he he says in chapter 1, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last words of the Greek alphabet. This isn't just drawn uh, out of nowhere. Jesus is drawing here on a tradition from the Old Testament, specifically the book of Isaiah in chapters 40 to 48. I'll give you one example. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4, the Lord says this, Yahweh says this, who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, the first and with the last, I am he. Now again, the specific context of Isaiah is a people, uh, half of the kingdom has gone into exile, the other half is about to go into exile uh, via Babylon. This book is written as an encouragement to an oppressed people surrounded by political idolatry and and, and military dominance. That's the great fear in the book of Isaiah is we are going to be harassed and defeated and dominated by foreign powers. So we need to uh, essentially create military alliances with Egypt. And, and, And this idea of God being the first and the last is to contrast God as incomparably more powerful than Babylon, incomparably more powerful than Assyria or Egypt or any of these military superpowers. He's saying, don't be afraid. I am the Alpha and the Omega. What, what, what God is communicating to the people of Israel, what God is, Jesus is communicating to the church of Smyrna, is that our lives are caught up in the story of Jesus. Jesus is the first and the last. In other words, he is our history and he is our destiny. He will have the first, he has the first word, right? And he will have the last word. Caesar doesn't have the last word, right? In our context, we might say our government doesn't have the last word. Our president doesn't have, whoever's sitting in the White House doesn't have the last word. Congress and the Senate don't have the final word. The United States doesn't have the final word. Jesus has the final word on our lives. And our stories are caught up in his story. Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. He goes on to say, I know some things about you. Notice what he says in terms of encouraging this church. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Two words that Jesus uses to describe this church, two things he knows about this church. One is they are facing extreme tribulation. And secondly, they are experiencing crushing poverty. Not just material poverty, but as we'll see, social poverty. Social capital, we might call that today. This, this word uh, for tribulation is a word that's used throughout the book of Revelation, one of the key words in the book of Revelation. If you go back to the very first chapter, John, most people think is the Apostle John, one of Jesus' close friends, writing himself. He says, I, your brother, I, a fellow sufferer in tribulation. John, we know, has been exiled, we believe, most historians believe, to the island of Patmos, to a rock quarry, to essentially uh, a work camp because of his faith in Jesus. 
And this word thlipsis is the Greek word, thlipsis, kind of a cool word. Thlipsis. It means affliction. I mean, it is a word that is a rich word used throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and the New. It means oppression. So if you read the book of Exodus and you read about the oppression, God's people being oppressed by Pharaoh, crying out in their distress, that word oppression is the, in the Greek, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, is this word thlipsis. It literally means a crushing pressure. So what Jesus is referring to here in terms of suffering in the, book of, in the church of Smyrna is not just a general kind of suffering that's caused by their own sin. You see that in the book of Isaiah. They sinned, they get exiled, it's a result of their sin. This is more akin to the suffering that people were experiencing in Egypt. This is a, not a suffering of just life in a broken world, like you know, you, you've got an illness or you're, you're suffering something physically or mentally or emotionally. This is a, a certain kind of suffering. Most often in the New Testament, this word thlipsis is used in reference to uh, the coming of the kingdom of God. So if you read throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses this word a lot. Paul uses this word a lot, like 1 Corinthians. He uses it a lot. When the kingdom of God comes into this world through Jesus, it clashes with the kingdom of darkness. It clashes with the kingdom of Satan, with all of its idols, with all of its injustice. As the future kingdom begins to break in through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the future gets pulled into the present. There is a a lifting of a certain kind of curtain, a certain kind of veil of evil and darkness in the world. And, And it provokes like the, the clashing values, the clashing uh, convictions, the clashing ways of life provoke a certain hostility and violence. That's the kind of suffering that John's writing about. And, and, and the suffering they were experiencing kind of happened on a couple of layers. So there's the, there's the layer that we can see, the visible layer, and that's kind of the sociopolitical uh, reality we've talked about before, but I'll just mention it again uh, the sociopolitical reality here with all of the nationalism, with all of the, the militarism that characterized the violence, that characterized the peace of Rome, that paradox. Um, one of the things that was happening specifically in Smyrna, the Jews um, under Roman law had what, like, kind of like what we have, but a little bit stronger with like a tax exemption. They had an exemption in the Roman Empire from the worship of Caesar. They were allowed to not participate in the festivals and all of the the things that kind of went with the imperial cult. They actually were able to exempt themselves from military service because they didn't want to serve in a military that was just about the expansion of Rome. So they had an exemption. But there was a kind of fragility to this exemption. The Senate could actually revoke it at any time. And so Christians many of whom were ethnically Jewish and were viewed by the government as a Jewish sect, also refused to participate in imperial worship. Also, many of them refused to participate in state-sponsored violence, specifically in the military at that time. And and so what would happen was that 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 was kind of making the Jews nervous. They're like, hey, these these aren't our people. This this is not our guys. They were were worried about losing their their exemptions. And so what would happen is Jews would slander, they would blaspheme is the word there, they would literally uh, inform on Christians who were not abiding by the imperial edicts. And so the result was massive suffering, massive suffering. Uh, and, And what's interesting here, he talks about this poverty, this impoverished community. 
And, and it's really interesting because Smyrna itself was very wealthy. I mean, it was very much, I think of Broad Ripple. I mean, it was, it was a middle to upper middle class city. But the church was materially poor, and they were socially poor. Christians were ostracized socially, and they were boycotted. Their businesses were boycotted. Their shops were confiscated. Their homes ransacked. They were denied fair employment. Many were separated from their families, unjustly harassed, and imprisoned by Roman law enforcement, and even murdered. During this time, the emperor Domitian, this is probably the late first century, uh, instituted what's now been called a reign of terror, where uh, around at 92 AD, 40,000 Christians were killed, including Timothy, who was the author of the book in the New Testament, who was beaten to death, and John, who was exiled to Patmos, and Paul, who was beheaded, crucified maybe. We don't really know. So that's what's happening on the surface. But underneath that, John wants to draw our attention to a deeper reality, that it's not just sociopolitical what's happening here. There's a deeper agenda. There's a deeper energy driving this hostility. There's a spiritual core to the sociopolitical reality. See, this is what we said about the book of Revelation. There's more than what we can see with our five senses at work in the world. And if you miss this, you will miss a key understanding of life in God's kingdom. There is more to hostility than what we can see with our eyes. John says these accusations, this slander, that what was happening sociopolitically was motivated by a dark power, the Satan, the accuser, the false accuser, the, the slanderer himself is the one that is motivating. That's why he calls uh, this, 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 this uh, kind of persecution that's happening the synagogue of Satan. He's saying, as they slander you, as they say false things about you, with the, with the work of Satan in the world, they are being used like pawns in Satan's schemes to destroy, schemes to destroy God's people. It's an ability to have a vision on what's happening around us and to see the complexity of it. See, oftentimes our diagnosis of what's happening in the world is far too reductionistic. We take a, a, a philosophy that may be partially true and we absolutize it and we say, this is reality. We see reality through the lens of all the isms, right? Classism, racism, sexism, capitalism, socialism, nationalism, right? All these isms. And again, not to say those things aren't true. There are true things that all of those, those, those systems, those philosophies point, about, point out about the reality of the world. But what many of them miss is the reality of the greatest ism of all, Satanism, that undergirds the other isms. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 6, a guy who knew tribulation well. He talks about this all the time. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Not against the rules. Uh, against the rulers, kind of against the rules, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We've talked about the three dimensions of sin and evil in the world before. There's the personal, right, that resides in the human heart. There's the social that exists in the systems and structures of the world that perpetuate the evil in the human heart and actually metastasize it throughout the world. And then there's the spiritual, 
Miles mentioned earlier um, this documentary on PBS, The Black Church. Um, and it's really fascinating because one of the things that gets talked about a little bit in there, but not as much as I wish that it would, because I, I, I understand it's being given for a, a broader, mostly non-Christian audience, a lot of a non-Christian audience. It's put out on PBS. One of the beautiful things and one of the secrets to the power of the civil rights movement was this very ability they had to understand that what was happening in racism, what was happening in slavery, what was happening in Jim Crow segregation was not just sociopolitical, although it was that, right? There was certainly a reality, and that's why Dr. King could say, uh, laws don't change hearts, but they sure do help me from getting lynched. So there's a reality to where they saw the power of changing laws, but underneath that, most of what's happening, most of what's taking place in the civil rights movement and the history of the black church is happening in churches as church, churches worship, as they study the Bible, as they come together under the banner of King Jesus and they refuse to allow Jesus to be domesticated. The power is they begin to see this as a spiritual battle. There are dark forces animating racism, systemic racism in the world. And they talked about this a lot. One example of this, William Stringfellow, speaking at the first conference on race, race and religion in 1963, says it so beautifully. And we need to see this as we look at the injustices, as we look at the idolatry of our days, we look at nationalism, as we look at different things that are happening right now. We need to learn to have this lens, kind of like bifocals. We need to be able to see both realities. Here's what he says. The monstrous American heresy. Listen to this. The monstrous heresy, he says, is not racism. The monstrous American heresy is in thinking that the whole drama of history takes place between God and humanity. But the truth, biblically and theologically and empirically, is quite otherwise. The drama of this history takes place amongst God and humanity and the principalities and powers, the great institutions and ideologies active in the world. It is the corruption and shallowness of humanism that is secularism, which beguiles Jew or Christian into believing that human beings are masters of institution or ideology. Or to put it differently, racism is not an evil, and I would say, I think he means only in human hearts or minds. Racism is a principality. It is a demonic power, a representative image, an embodiment of death over which human beings have little or no control, but which works its awful influence in their lives. And so the battle they were raging was not just social and political, it was spiritual. And that's why they use language like we're fighting for the soul of America. They understood that there's a spiritual battle underneath and that it will provoke hostility and violence. Now, the question is, how does this apply to us in America? The Church of Smyrna undoubtedly was experiencing a kind of religious persecution that, if we're honest, many of us don't experience day in and day out here in the West. I mean, I know there are paranoid pundits who are constantly telling us, um, you know, about uh, how we're losing our religious freedoms, and there's all this alarmism around religious freedoms. But the reality is, we enjoy more religious freedom today in this country than at any other time in human history, by and large. It's a fact. We're not in Iran. We're not in China. We're not in Pakistan. So does this even apply to us? Like, how do we apply this to our modern moment? 
One of the things that we need to understand is that this word thlipsis uh, for tribulation. There's a range, a spectrum of how this word is used in terms of severity and intensity in the New Testament. It ranges from severe persecution and death to natural disasters like plagues and pestilence to just kind of the ordinary day in and day out struggles that we experience as we live on the edge of the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Everyday struggles like harassment. Everyday struggles like slander. Everyday struggles like exclusion, marginalization, alienation from our family members, from our communities, from our neighbors, from the business community. Even the dominant religious community itself can become a source of persecution and alienation. First Peter, uh, Peter writing to another congregation in the Roman Empire around the same time says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles which, uh, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of, visit, of, your visit, of his visitation. Peter calls Christians sojourners and exiles. Literally, the wording there could be phrased resident aliens or resident refugees or resident immigrants. So Peter is saying that we're like homeless refugees. That's our identity as Christians in the world in reference to the dominant cultures in which we find ourselves, whether it's Rome or Indianapolis. and, And as refugees, we face just this daily ache of disappointment, discouragement, disorientation. You ever just feel like, I'm just, I'm not at home. Like, we certainly feel that in a pandemic. We're not at home. But we felt that before the pandemic. We'll feel that after the pandemic. There's this sense of disorientation that I'm not at home, right? I don't have the right papers. I don't have the right passport. And I'm living this very tenuous, fragile existence as a homeless person. If you you came to this country, your parents or grandparents came to this country as immigrants, you know what that feels like. Many of us have forgotten that's our heritage. All of us, that's our heritage. We don't fit into boxes like progressive or conservative, if we're, if we're really following the words of Peter. We, we don't uh, fit into traditional boxes, and yet we're committed to living as resident aliens, meaning we, we, lo- we can love the places in which we live without idolizing them. And that's going to bring us into conflict with those who absolutize and try to make this place the home. Christians have always had that sense of weirdness, Right? They, they have, they've had these views that put them in conflict with different ruling and reigning powers. They were loyal to Jesus over the empire, which put them at odds with nationalists. They were nonviolent, committed to a way of nonviolence in the world, which put them at odds with the militarism of the Roman Empire. They empowered women, and they called men to give up their power and serve women, which put them at odds, certainly gender-wise, in those days. They were committed to sexual integrity, right? And and, and that put them at odds with the sexual agenda of the day. They were anti-abortion. They were those who didn't uh, throw their babies in the river, which was a very common practice to leave children out to be exposed to the elements. And that put them at odds with people of their day. 
They were for religious liberty. Even as they tried to convert people, they were for religious tolerance, which put them at odds with some of the fanatics of the day. They spoke out against systemic racism and injustice. They showed solidarity with the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the fatherless, the poor, the immigrant. Like, when you live that way now, it's the same as it was. To live that way now is to put ourselves at risk of the same cancel culture that they experienced back then, which, by the way, today is on the left and the right. And that's why the invitation of Jesus is do not fear. That's the invitation of wholeness. Do not fear. Have courage. He's not saying don't be afraid because nothing bad will happen to you. Notice what Jesus says here. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He's saying it's going to get worse. The more faithful you are, the more you refuse to fall into these ditches and into these boxes, it's going to get more intense not less. He's not saying, don't be afraid because nothing bad will happen to you. Jesus promises, if they hated me, they will hate you. You will experience tribulation and suffering in my name. Matter of fact, if you're the kind of person who's not experiencing tribulation, if you're not experiencing that disorientation, if you're not experiencing that sense of alienation, you're probably not being public about your faith. Even in a place like Indianapolis, which seems imbued with religion everywhere. What he's saying to these people, what he's saying to the church at Smyrna, is when you look to the future and you imagine that you're going to suffer because you will, remember, as he says back in chapter one, to look at me. Remember, look at me. Look at me, he says. Remember that I have the keys to death and Hades. Evil literally drugged me down to the pits of hell. But I defeated death and I rose from the dead and I'm alive and I've conquered your greatest enemy. It's not just that I've suffered what you're going to suffer. I have actually suffered what you're going to suffer. And I came out on the other side and I defeated death. Like imagine having access to a person who not only went through cancer, but actually cured cancer. Who not only went through dementia, but cured dementia. Who not only went through what you're experiencing, but cured it and fixed it and trounced it. That's the invitation. See, fear and anxiety, they increase both our physical pain and our psychological pain because we imagine a future where Jesus is not there. That's the very definition of anxiety. Imagining a future of suffering without Jesus there with you. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Look at me. Fix the gaze of your heart. Not on the pundits on television, not on social media, not on the newspaper, not on your parents, not on your grandchildren, Fix your eyes on me. Look at me. Stop allowing your thoughts and feelings and your imagination and your desires to be preoccupied with objects that only increase your fear and anxiety. Redirect your attention to me. And notice the promises. Like, why, why is that such a comfort? Is that just escapism? To go, yeah, it's like a Jesus juke. Like, yeah, just look at me. While they're being thrown to lions, sawn in two, 
turned over to the authorities, losing their businesses, losing their reputation? No. Jesus says, look at me, and he, and he gives them some encouragements quickly. He says, I want you to look at me and remember I am present in your suffering. I want you to remember that I am powerful over your suffering, and I want you to hear the promises that I'm going to make to you about your suffering. He says, first, I'm present to you in your suffering. He says, I know your suffering. I know your tribulation. I know what you're going to experience. And when Jesus says he knows, he's not just like, you know, a detached, you know, clinical philosopher who's like, yeah, I, I wrote a book about that. No, he says, I know. He's reminding them whatever they were about to experience. He's already walked the path. He can be an empathetic high priest because he knows firsthand what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to be slandered. He knows what it's like to be betrayed, to be powerless, to feel vulnerable, to feel rejected, to feel humiliated, to feel as if the future has no hope. He's not been there. He also wants to remind them that he has not only been there, but he is with them in solidarity in their pain. One of the most challenging parts of suffering, I find, is the feeling not only of the suffering itself, but of the feeling of being utterly alone. Have you ever felt that way? Just alone. Unseen, uncared for, isolated, just utterly alone. Jesus reminds them that I know you're suffering because your suffering is my suffering. Jesus, remember, is the head of the body called the church. So for us to suffer, Jesus is saying, it's like my arm suffering. It's like my, my own heart suffering. He feels our suffering as part of his own body. And that's why he is encouraging them. Remember, you're rich. You are rich. If you are in union with me, if you are connected to me by faith, what's true of me is true of you. What belongs to me belongs to you. So yes, you're suffering, but just remember as you suffer, I suffer with you. My suffering is part of why you're suffering. It's not even about you. It is Satan coming after me. And because you bear my name, you will suffer as my disciple. But remember, you're also rich. You're rich in your relationship with me. You're rich in the gifts that I have to offer you, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, all these things you're learning as you're suffering. You're rich because you have my comfort and you have the comfort of one another. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians 1. Paul talks about this so eloquently. And Pastor James and I were talking about this at the beginning of the pandemic, and this was a passage we kept coming to back over and over again. It was offering such encouragement to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our thlipsis, our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Which, we, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. 
For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Your ability to find comfort in tribulation, to not despair and get cynical and bitter, like the stakes, Paul says, is not only for you, but as you experience comfort and as you experience the joy and as you experience the encouragement of Christ's presence, you are then to the degree you're able to actually appropriate that to your heart and mind and soul and life, are then able to turn around and open up the treasure chest for other people and offer them that comfort. I mean, I don't know about you, but just that's, what, that's the vision that Jesus has for the church, that we would be a, a solidarity of suffering together, that as one part suffers, all suffer, that we're able to offer the empathic presence of Christ to one another in the midst of our suffering, that we don't sit down and, and, and just talk about it in the abstract. Yeah, man, that stinks. Sorry you're going through this. But we actually know what it's like to suffer, and we offer the comfort that Christ has offered to us. There's a richness to that as we share in that patience together, as we share in that empathy together, as we share in that solidarity together as fellow sufferers. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I, I feel like I need nothing more in this moment. I need nothing more as we all suffer than to have somebody who can sit down eye to eye, heart to heart, face to face, to face Lord willing, and say, yeah, man, I know what it's like. Jesus knows what it's like. Let's pray together. Let's weep together. Let's be reminded that Christ is with us in our suffering. Jesus is present in our suffering. He is powerful over our suffering. He uses this, this imagery of 10 days taken from the book of Daniel. And it's, it's a figurative reference to the idea that suffering has limitations. It won't last forever. Within the providence of God, our suffering will not endure forever. There's an expiration date for your suffering. It will come to an end. So don't despair. Satan is trying to test you. He's trying to tempt you to fall. But Jesus, notice this, repurposes this testing. This idea of testing is putting gold through a fire. It's, it's literally what is intended to destroy by Satan. Jesus repurposes our pain in suffering and actually makes us like gold. He uses it to beautify us, to glorify us, to make us more like him, to improve is the idea, to improve our faith, to deepen our trust. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, we despaired for our lives, but, but in the midst of that, we had to cling to Jesus in a way that we never had before. That's what is happening in our suffering. Jesus is powerful over it. He will not allow us to endure more than he allows. And then lastly, he makes us a promise in our suffering. He, he says, I will give you the crown of life. Remember that in your suffering, there is a deeper ground of joy that's coming for you. He who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says. To the one who conquers, I will give the crown of life, and the second death will not hurt you. Conquering in the book of Revelation doesn't come through military force. It doesn't come through grit, being strong enough, being smart enough, being educated enough, being well-connected, being a citizen, whatever. It doesn't come in the book of Revelation through force and coercion and power. Conquering in the book of Revelation comes in the way of Jesus through a lamb who's slain, through weakness, through suffering, not through strength 
and through triumph. It comes through tragedy. It comes as we look to Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. And as we feel powerless in the face of satanically motivated political and religious and social and emotional and spiritual forces that are swirling around us, we remember that ultimately there's joy coming. That underneath our pain is the reality of joy. Pain has an expiration date. Joy never ends. It just doesn't. Joy has the final word. This idea of the crown of life was the laurel wreath given at athletic games, the Stephanos. It was given to the victors who endured all of the pain of training, all of the pain of the race, and they, they reached out across the finish line, and they, they went up and they stood before the bema, the judges. We read that language in the New Testament. And they received the victor's crown. And in the, in the book of Revelation, this is just saying to us that the joy of God's presence, the joy of our inheritance, the crown of life, the tree of life, all of these things, this is more real and more lasting than our deepest pain. We will reign and rule with Christ forever. And that is the invitation to us. You will not be hurt by the second death, right? You will not be cast into the lake of fire. In other words, you will not be separated from God Death is not the end for you. So even if they kill your body, even if they slander your reputation and they rob you of that great possession of being an image bearer of God, in the end, death is merely for the Christian a portal through which we enter into the fullness of life with God. Is that good news? That is good news for us as a church, right? When we stop being afraid of death, we can actually start being free to live. And that is the invitation to the, book of Smyr- to the church at Smyrna from Jesus. I see your tribulation. I see your poverty. But look to me. I have the keys of death. You don't have to be afraid. I have defeated the very thing that you are most afraid of. And now you are set free to live a life of fullness and joy in the midst of your suffering. Let's just take a moment and pray to God as we go to communion here together and be reminded that this is the only hope that we have when we're experiencing so much suffering. And again, I, I don't want to compare suffering. It's not really helpful. We all have our own suffering. And I don't know what that looks like for you right now. Maybe it's a sickness or the death of a family member. Maybe it is a sort of alienation and discomfort that you're experiencing from being public about your faith in Jesus. Maybe it's just feeling depressed, anxious, sad, lonely, discouraged, beat down. I I don't know what you're walking through. But I just want you to take a moment to lift that up to Jesus, to actually see him taking that with you, sharing your burden, knowing your pain. In the stillness of your own prayer, would you just lift that? Maybe just take your hands. Would you just lift it up to him? Give him your burdens. Give him your cares. Give him your concerns. Understand that he sees you. He knows you. He is with you and present in your suffering. He is powerful over your suffering, and he has made you a promise that your suffering doesn't have the final word. So let's look to him. Let's cry out to him. Let's remember that Jesus came, that he lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we should die. He rose again to give us the crown of life. And that doesn't just start in heaven in the by and by. It starts right now. So as communion comes and it's distributed, let's make that our prayer. Let's cry out to God.
and ask him for mercy. Let's ask him for grace to sustain us in our suffering. Let's trust in him once again. Let's turn away from trusting in any other thing for security or comfort or joy. And let's renew once again our commitment to Jesus, our loyalty to Jesus as the one who sustains us in our suffering.